Oh, God. In case, dear listener, you're wondering what that was, it was a freaking sand tornado. I am a tech reporter. So how did I find myself out here? It's like a cartoon out here, but like the really fatal kind. It's hard not to notice the increasing urgency of the climate crisis and how closely it's starting to resemble apocalyptic science fiction. This is parable of the sower right here. It's like way too hot. Feels like society has collapsed. And now, after decades of inaction, we have a very brief window, maybe only one decade, to make dramatic changes to how much carbon we dump into the atmosphere if we want to potentially survive on Earth. So a few years back, I decided that how we adapt to the worst weather impacts of the climate crisis is, in many ways, a tech story. One climate scientist told me it's an engineering problem, and you better believe it's a business story. So after 20 years of covering startups and innovation and tech companies and investment, I went looking for climate solutions. First, I took the plunge and leased an electric car. Oh my God, how do you plug it in? How do you, what do I do? I picked up a couple of ace producers and engineers who are willing to indulge in a little karaoke. <gasps> Friends in low places! Do you know this song? No. Cause I got friends in And we drove all over the American West during some record-breaking heat waves. The thing you definitely don't want to crap out in 118 degrees in the desert when you have like some driving to do is the AC. I just keep sort of like trying to lower the temperature. I'm sorry I dragged you guys into the desert in an experimental vehicle. I didn't know the whole car was a beta. It's fine. We're fine. We talk to people with just about every viewpoint imaginable. I'm personally on Team Extinction, which I know is an unpopular viewpoint. I don't think we're worth the harm we cause. Our Mother Earth hurts, and if we don't protect her, how is she supposed to protect us? There is some sort of a climate change. My belief is it's not man-made. We can't fight everybody's fight for them. We just have to fight for ourselves here. I think that if we don't make these changes, future generations are going to look back at us and say, what the hell was wrong with them? And so I found a lot of messy human conflict and drama. But don't worry, I also found some solutions and some hope. One of the most promising solutions that exists right now is so boring that it was hard for me to convince almost anyone that it would make a good podcast topic. Batteries. I know, but stay with me. Batteries are crucial to transitioning us off of fossil fuels. Let me explain. So first, we need to make this massive switch to renewable energy. Stop pouring billions of tons of carbon into the air every year by burning oil and gas and coal. We already have geothermal and water and solar and wind energy, but it turns out you need batteries, walls of them, buildings full of them, to store and distribute energy when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. You need batteries for electric vehicles, batteries to power houses when the lights go out. You need so many batteries. And the irreplaceable foundation of most batteries right now is lithium a metal that's everywhere in the Earth's crust, but most of the world's supply is still stuck in the ground. The U.S. is trying to get into the lithium mining game fast, and it's really important for this huge energy transition. But not everyone is happy about that. (laughs) 
I'm Molly Wood. This is How We Survive, a podcast from Marketplace about how finding solutions to the climate crisis is a messy business. This is episode one, White Gold. And in this first episode, we're starting with a lithium mining project that's generating a lot of fighting. I'm way up in northern Nevada in a crescent-shaped mountain pass not too far from the Oregon border called Thacker Pass. Dust devil, dust tornado, almost ate those people. It is gorgeous. The mountains are stark and tall and brown-green with this mix of dirt and miles and miles of sagebrush. This is a cool landscape. There are high, fluffy white clouds, and when it storms in the late afternoon, this whole valley smells like this earthy, wet sage. And a company called Lithium Americas wants to dig up a big chunk of it and build a mine that would produce lithium for up to 40 years. That proposal has all kinds of people in this part of Nevada freaking out. We're going to fight this mine like hell. We're going to try and stop it. That's Max Wilbert. He started a protest camp at Thacker Pass back in January. And here's the fundraising video they made back then. This is a $1.3 billion mining project. And we're trying to raise $5,000 to resist it. So if there's ever been a David versus Goliath story, this is one of them. Max and his best friend, Will Falk, an activist and a lawyer, have been living here in the protest camp pretty much full time through the winter and the sweltering summer. Will has been filing legal briefs from a Jeep parked up on the pass. My life is devoted to stopping this mine right now. (laughs) Those legal briefs are aimed at Lithium Americas, a Canadian-based company and its American subsidiary, Lithium Nevada. This part of Nevada has one of the largest known lithium deposits in the country. Over the next four decades, the company says it'll provide jobs and make a real dent in this major energy transition off of fossil fuels. Lithium Nevada has been planning the mine for almost a decade. Last winter, it had gotten pretty close to breaking ground. But Max and Will are kind of the Pied Pipers of Thacker Pass. Over the months, they convinced some of the tribe members from the nearby Fort McDermott Reservation and even neighboring tribes from farther away to join them in opposing the digging. The mine, Max tells me, would bulldoze habitat for sensitive wildlife species like sage grouse, pronghorn antelope, Lahontan trout, even apparently a rare species of snail. These companies like Lithium Nevada are primarily interested in making money. That's their goal. And they may tell these stories to us about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, about saving the world. They have no obligation to actually go forward with that. It makes for really good marketing speak, but when it really comes down to it, the laws say they have to do the best as they can to return investment money to their shareholders. But the main point of the protest, Max says, is that this land is sacred burial ground for the Paiute Shoshone people. Now, you can't really help but notice that Max and Will, the ones doing most of the talking, are white. And so are most of the people at the protest camp. The day I was there, however, there was one exception. I think a lot of people showing up here, I think depending on like non-Indigenous or Indigenous, Indigenous, you know, they see it potentially as like a next dapple. Um, Dakota Access Pipeline. And so, um, you know, they're wanting to stand with us. They're wanting to hear that Indigenous voice. This is Duranda Hinkey. She is a Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone tribal member. 
She said she read about the proposed mine in a news article after Max and Will had set up their protest camp in January. She was away at school at Southern Oregon University and was surprised she hadn't heard about the project before. And so that's when I started doing my research. You know, I was looking up what lithium mines, like how destructive they were down in South America. I ran across Max and Will. That's when I met them. And um, that's when I started doing a little bit more education and teaching with a lot of our family members on the, on the reservation and then more tribal members and like, hey, we should do something. You know, we need to stand up like this is our ancestral homelands. Duranda has since moved back to the reservation and spends a good amount of time at the protest site. Up there, you'll see a few tents and a fence covered in signs that say things like protect Thacker Pass, lithium lies, and also protect Pahimaha. Duranda tells me Pahimaha is the tribe's name for this land. And that's why we pushed for Protect Pahimaha as, you know, using that, that name. And she says there's a gruesome story about this spot. The story about Pahimaha was that this was a camp. This was a campsite. Duranda says about 200 years ago, this land was a migration route used by the Paiute people. One day, hunters left the camp to find buffalo. She says as they returned, they noticed a terrible smell that got worse as they got closer. And when they made it back to the campsite, she says... The whole camp, their families, the, the women, the children, they're all massacred. Duranda says the buffalo hunters returned under a full moon to a shocking discovery. Their intestines were, were draped along the sagebrush. She says the bones of those massacred remain in this ground, making it sacred to the tribe, especially since the massacre was so horrific. The word Pahimaha, she says, means rotten moon. But other members of the same tribe say, what now? I've never heard of a massacre. That's Alana Crutcher, a fellow Paiute Shoshone who grew up on the reservation and now lives in Elko, Nevada, about three hours from Thacker Pass. That's not the name of that mountain. That's not the name of that place. She tells me she had never heard of this land being called Rotten Moon. She says actually she thinks the tribe is being used as a prop to stop a project that could help her people. I, I'm not going to see that they're liars, but, you know, I'm not going to say that there's, you know, where they got their information. I don't know. We're totally being misrepresented. We couldn't confirm the massacre story either way. I looked everywhere. Books, internet, we called a local museum, we checked with other tribe members and basically got the same conflicting histories. The Paiute Shoshone have an oral tradition, and the word Pahimaha doesn't appear in any written records until stories about the mine at Thacker Pass started showing up late last year. The Paiute Shoshone tribe is split. We've talked to some members who actively support the mine, many who don't. The question of whether it's a burial ground won't get settled until an archaeological group does some digging to see what, if any, artifacts lie in the ground on Thacker Pass. But either way, protests like Dakota Access Pipeline have shown that indigenous people across this country are tired of having their land taken whenever it's convenient for white people. And so the opposition to this mine has recruited tribal support from beyond Thacker Pass. Back on the pass, Duranda showed me the ground littered with these light-colored rocks, which, it turns out, are the stuff that's causing all the fuss. Yeah, so I think this is the lithium that they're going for. Oh, really? This is what they're mining. This is the white gold. All right, as you can probably tell, Thacker Pass is a place with a lot of layers and no easy narratives. Except one. 
The people who are used to sacrificing are sick of it. And the ones who don't usually have to really don't want to. Those are the farmers and ranchers of the nearby town of Oravada, who we'll visit next. Nevada is a state with a long mining history. In fact, in some ways, northern Nevada doesn't feel that far from the gold rush of 1849. There are still active gold and silver mines and legal brothels. We stayed in nearby Winnemucca, and I met a couple of young miners in the elevator, cussing each other out on their way to do laundry after 12-hour shifts. Thacker Pass is about an hour north of Winnemucca, along Highway 95, and the closest town to the pass is Oravada, population about 200. We met farmers and ranchers who have been neighbors and close friends for decades, but who have a lot of different opinions on the question of the mine. Okay. Thanks for having I'm us. I'm Wendelin Miratori. Hi, I'm Molly. Wendelin and Martin Miratori are alfalfa farmers who live about five miles south of the proposed mine site. Wendelin told us we could find their one-story ranch house by looking for the Trump 2024 flag out front. She and Martin have been married 44 years and have 10 kids together. They met when Wendelin was 14. We were at a high school dance, and his friend Paul brings him over and says, Here! He likes you. (laughs) And that was basically that. The couple said they had always dreamed of farming and living off the grid. They call their operation Disaster Farms. It's named after Disaster Peak, which you can see in the distance from their house. Wendelin offered us iced tea, and the couple told us they'd been following the mine project for nearly a decade, but it was the sort of thing they just thought never would really happen. Now it's starting to look like apparently they're getting more serious, that they're going to do something, and so um, you get more alarmed because it's really going to happen. Here are the basics of the mine proposal. It would sit on about 17,000 acres of land in all. 5,000 acres of that would be a pit mine, basically a huge hole in the ground. I'm talking about a hole the size of 5,000 football fields. In very simple terms, workers will dig up the clay that contains the lithium, They'll use water to dissolve the clay and then use sulfuric acid to separate the lithium from what clay is left. The acid will be made on site. The company will truck in thousands of tons of hot melted sulfur every day. And once it's there, they'll burn it until it turns into gas. And then they'll convert it in a couple more sciencey steps into sulfuric acid. These are the kinds of details that when you hear them, create questions. So back in 2015, Lithium Nevada started reaching out to the ranchers and farmers of Orvada and surrounding towns with some gatherings. There were, Wendelin told me, sandwiches. They had a, a luncheon for all the communities, and they, they had this really nice lunch for us that they invited us to. They wanted everyone in the community to have a chance to come and learn about the mine and address any concerns with company representatives. And Wendelin had a lot of concerns. Traffic, noise, air pollution, and impact to the water they all share. So we ate our lunch, and then they started feeding us the BS. Wendelin claims they said the mine would be tiny. No noise, no pollution, maybe a few trucks up and down the road every day, barely any traffic at all. It's like a miracle mine. It's the best thing that's ever going to happen to us because nothing could go wrong, (laughs) according to them. But then, Wendelin says, another executive started answering that truck's question a little differently. 
he said, we will have at least one truck an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year on the highway with just the sulfur. And she's like, whoa, 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 how many trucks? All of a sudden, Wendelin's sandwich wasn't sitting so well. And after seeing all the shenanigans they pulled up there, I'm just like, these people couldn't be transparent if their life depended on it, and they don't want to be. We asked Lithium Americas about the details of that meeting. The company said the truck traffic data from Wendelin's story is flawed. Their spokesman pointed to a published report that said there would actually be three trucks an hour of sulfur and other mining material. Also, he said he's pretty sure the meal was dinner. Anyway, that was a few years ago, and it's kind of how things were left until December of 2020. That's when the Bureau of Land Management released its environmental impact statement for the Thacker Pass project. And then, in January, Lithium Americas got a gift. Federal approval of the project. The approval was part of a handful of energy and mining projects that were unexpectedly pushed through on President Trump's last Friday in office. I was just in a state of disbelief that they could basically just lie, and the BLM would fall for it hook, line, and sinker. But like everything in Thacker Pass, there are some more layers here. For example, Wendelin and Martin are very opposed to big government. They fought with the IRS for years over federal taxes. For them, the mine is just another example of government overreach by the Bureau of Land Management. And then there's climate change. It's a lot easier to get behind the mine if you believe in the premise of its benefits, right? Well, while we were talking with Wendelin, her husband Martin came in with a load of groceries, and he chimed in from the counter on this question. Oh, I I can guarantee you there there is a climate change. I've been farming for 45 years, and, and some in California, some here. I can guarantee you there is some sort of a climate change but my belief is it's not man-made. The Earth has done it, done it for thousands of years, if not millions, and uh, we go through these things. Ice ages come down, warming happens. I'm not, there's nothing we could do to change it. If we could, we'd fix it, and you can't. And Wendelin says things we think are solutions to climate change cause more problems than they solve. Take wind turbines, for example. They can't have cows feed under those because it it causes some kind of birth defects. This is what my sister who has cattle was telling me. So I looked. I couldn't find any scientific evidence of that. But like so many things here in Nevada, you can find some truth in what almost everyone has to say. It's just like people have lost their common sense in some areas in trying to save the planet but I'm not so sure they're saving anything. They're making a lot of people rich. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in green. Layers, am I right? But bottom line, by the spring of 2021, opposition to the mine had gotten really loud. There were multiple lawsuits. There were community meetings between Lithium Nevada and the farmers and ranchers of Oravada that Wendelin and other folks in the Valley told us got really heated, like people storming out of them kind of heated, way worse than the sandwich meeting. People in the mining industry say communities often get upset and vocal when a mining project is close to breaking ground. But this did seem unusually hostile. 
So Lithium Nevada started formally negotiating with some representatives of the community, not the tribal protesters, and offered up some concessions, like millions of dollars for a new school. And they found some takers. This is hail, weather, and there it is. Yep. Yep, this is what happens this time of year. It's crazy. (laughs) Nothing like a little hail to start an outdoor interview where I found myself hiding under the awning of Oravada's only school. My name is Gina Amato, and I am a local farmer in the area. And right now we are standing in front of Oravada Elementary School. The school is an issue because it's right next to the two-lane road where those dozens of trucks filled with sulfur and other material will be traveling every day. Gina told me that she's deeply conflicted. She personally doesn't want the mine to go in, but she's trying to be realistic. I hope that it can be stopped, but we have to deal with the reality that it might not be. And if it's not this mining company that comes in, there's going to be more. The demand for it's not going to stop. This spring, Gina became co-chair of the Thacker Pass Concerned Citizens Group, looking for a better way to engage with each other and with Lithium Nevada. The concerned citizens got this concession they're really happy about. Lithium Nevada committed verbally in one of those public meetings to spend $12 million on a new school in a new location. Gina says she just wants the community to be taken care of. But if it were up to her, there definitely wouldn't be a mine at all, no matter how good it is for the planet. Well, and of course, the other argument for the mine is climate change, right? Is the environment, is this idea that it could potentially contribute to a massive energy transition that saves a lot of people and animals and property. Where do you fall on that part of it? At what cost are we the sacrifice for that cost? And where I fall on that is I'm not willing to bear that burden and I want to do whatever I can to prevent us from being the sacrificial lamb. Whatever the deal is that the concerned citizens and the mine may come up with, however, it does not include the nearby Fort McDermott reservation and the tribal members who don't want to sacrifice their native lands. That, says Gina, is a different fight. What's different about the fight? You mean the the land itself? Yes. Because it feels like everybody would benefit from infrastructure and... Well, yes, yes. But I think that we've gotten sectioned off into our own... uh, They're worried about uh, more about the environmental impact and the sacred lands. And of course, those are all important. To us, we're worried about things like the school that might not necessarily affect them. We're worried about uh, the direct impacts on um, the people who live and work among this community here that don't necessarily affect them where they are. So um, we just, we can't fight everybody's fight for them. We just have to really fight for ourselves here. After the break, the protesters at Thacker Pass say they're willing to fight, too. Back at the protest site on Thacker Pass, protest organizer Max Wilbert is telling me how, instead of an energy transition, we need to change everything about how we live and leave pristine land pristine. Drive less, consume less, populate less. I think that many of the mainstream solutions that were being sold, especially these technological solutions, like electric cars, are not real. 
I think they're greenwashing. They're more marketing than they are substance. But when I pushed him for solutions, I got problems. We've known for over 100 years that carbon contributes to global warming. Right. We've changed nothing. Don't we have to do everything now? I think we do. The problem is that when we focus on electric cars, we're ignoring the fact that that is like pointing a squirt gun at a raging wildfire. But what if we're focusing on energy transition? I'm not. I'm not talking about cars. Let's say we're. Let's say we're like baby steps toward energy transition. Yeah, I think the problem that I have with the whole energy transition idea is twofold. One is that it's entirely dependent on fossil fuels. So now it is. Yes. Now. Yeah. And Chicken and egg. Yes, but there are basic things like steel production are commercially impossible at this point without coal producing steel, which is used in... Anyway, you can argue with Max for a while, and I did. But in some ways, his diagnosis of our problems is hard to argue with. Humans do cause more species extinction than climate change. Capitalism has blocked real action on global warming. Manufacturing cars, even electric ones, has a huge carbon footprint, and we just don't need as many cars as we have now. All of that is true. But I couldn't quite figure out what solutions Max was arguing for. Until I did a web search and found out that both Max and his buddy Will are members of a radical environmental group called Deep Green Resistance. Here's Max in a video from their YouTube channel posted last December, right before they moved to Thacker Pass. The basic aim of DGR is to dismantle industrial civilization. It's to take the biggest manifestation of the dominant culture that is destroying the planet and to directly fight it, to directly stop it. The group believes that in order to save the planet, modern civilization needs to collapse. And the Deep Green Resistance website has some pretty detailed strategies for disrupting society. They range from policy to, quote, all-out attacks on infrastructure using a militant underground network of operatives. The site frames these decisive ecological warfare scenarios as hypothetical, but also as a manual for triggering the collapse of society that Deep Green Resistance argues is the only way to save the species, even if millions or billions die in the process. We have to recognize this that this is a war. So I asked Max directly whether he thought sabotaging infrastructure should be an option. And he told me yes, if fossil fuel or mining industries continue to accelerate an ecological and humanitarian climate crisis. And they're not willing to stop. What do you do about that? What's the morally right thing to do? Personally, I think that sabotage against those industries is completely morally justified. If the legal challenges fail and the, you know, occupation on the mountain fails, is violence an option at Thacker Pass? You cut right to the heart of the matter, don't you? <laughs> I only have one job, Max. Direct questions. <laughs> no, I hear you. It's an important question, and I'm trying to think how to answer that. Because I don't want to get arrested. I'm not interested in 
being a martyr, I'm interested in protecting land. So that is very pragmatically a very difficult question for me to answer. We have said from the beginning that this is a nonviolent campaign, and it's going to remain that way. The elders have asked that this camp remain nonviolent, that no weapons be allowed here, and we're following along with their wishes. You know, that said, there are always people involved in any fight like this who are willing to cross those lines. And are their actions justified? I don't know because no one has done anything yet, right? I can't say that a certain thing is justified because we're not in that situation. So that sounds like a solid maybe. What does this mean for the members of the tribe who have joined in opposing the mine? I think there's a, a fight coming. That's Doris Antonio, an aunt of Duranda, the young woman you heard from at the beginning of the episode. We found Doris on the Fort McDermott Reservation, sitting outside her home under a pop-up tent for shade. She was sitting with two elder relatives who mostly refused to talk to us. Doris's two grandsons ran around playing with a water hose and a plastic swimming pool. It was hot. Horseflies buzzed around, and an old gray pit bull slept under the table with his head on my foot. Initially, Doris says she was happy when she heard about the mine. I was excited for it because, you know, just like the other people, I thought, well, you know, it's a job, you know, close to home. You know, it's going to pay a lot. And until um, Duranda and my brother, you know, talked about it and brought awareness to us and then talking to Max and Will back in February or something when we did our first protest in Arvada is when they, um, you know, opened up my eyes more. There's Max and Will again. And now? We're going to stand strong. We're going to stand up for our land, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our children's grandchildren. I'm willing to do that when the time comes. What are you willing to do? Whatever I have to do. (laughs) You know, if the machines start coming in, you know, if I have to stand in front of a machine, I'm willing to do it. You know, I'm going to do it for my people. Back at Thacker Pass, Max and Will have hinted increasingly at direct confrontation if the mining project moves forward. Here's Will, who is also a member of Deep Green Resistance. Dorinda's aunts and grandma, there's five sisters that are really active here. And I sat down with them in their living room one day, and all five of them looked me in the eye and said that they would die before they let this mine go in. I asked Max about the danger people might be in. It's a little troubling to hear, like, the last time we spoke to Will, him mm-hmm. say, you know, we're working with these people and, and Duranda's aunties have told me that they're willing to die for this project. I would not do the elders that we have relationships with the disservice of thinking that I am somehow brainwashing them or that they're not intelligent people who can assess evidence and information and come to their own, own conclusions about what the morally important thing to do is in any, given situ- in any given situation is. But the Fort McDermott tribal members are far from united on the issue. A lot of the protesters aren't even our tribal members, aren't even people from, from the Fort McDermott reservation. 
and they don't they don't represent us. They don't represent us people as a tribe. That's Alana Crutcher, the woman we heard from at the beginning of the episode. She grew up on the Fort McDermott Reservation and now lives in Elko, Nevada, about three hours from Thacker Pass. Alana says she respects the opinions of Duranda and the tribal elders who oppose the mine. But something about the other protesters isn't sitting right with her. I don't think they have the best interests of our people. I, I, I think they're using our people as a scapegoat. I truly believe that. Alana has worked in the mining industry for 17 years. She's a heavy equipment operator and a new hire trainer. She wrote a letter supporting the mine that Lawyers for Lithium Americas quoted during one of the legal hearings back in August. Alana told us many members of the Paiute Shoshone tribe have worked in mines over the years, and she says plenty of them want this lithium mine to come in. Alana says growing up on the reservation, lots of families like hers didn't have much. I don't think we had electricity until maybe I was in junior high. We had an outhouse. We slept on the floor. We didn't have our own bedroom. We didn't have lights. We didn't have TV. We had a gas lamp. We didn't have all those amenities. That's why I want I want good things for our people. As for the non-native protesters and Max and Will, she says she thinks eventually they're just gonna bail. Where are they gonna be at when you know when when our family is is going through things? They're not gonna be there. Oh, no, they ain't going to be there to help us. They have suggested that we should, you know, instead of mining lithium, sort of stop driving cars and using technology. I sort of feel like when I hear you describe how you grow up, some of them are saying that's how we should be living. Well, then let them go on a bug and in wagon, you know. Let them go by horse and carriage. Let's see how long that lasts. That part of us is history now. That's part of our history and who we were and who we still represent. That that doesn't mean that we're no longer that person. That doesn't mean that that no longer runs through our blood. We're still that person, but we need to move on with technology. We need to move on with the world. So let's review our layers here. Here's this lithium mine that really could supply enough lithium to help electrify millions of cars, buses, trucks, power grids, even buildings and houses. That's a transition that would dramatically decrease our use of fossil fuels as we hurdle toward a level of warming that could easily wipe out almost all of us. And also, everyone in this story is both right and wrong all at the same time, and the world just keeps getting hotter. It's confusing. Seatbelt. In the next episode, we're going to track down some people who do support the mine and try to figure out if this necessary evil, resource extraction and digging up pristine mountains, is worth the sacrifice. Or if we have a chance to do things differently this time around. We want to get the lithium clearly, but you can do it in a way that doesn't, um, you know, that doesn't hurt the, the people, the land and the history. This is Jennifer Granholm. President Biden's Secretary of Energy. You sort of sound like you might have some concerns about that Nevada project. I do. Didn't see that coming. That's next time on How We Survive. How We Survive was created and hosted by me, Molly Wood. Haley Hirschman produced this episode with help from Marque Green and Grace Rubin. Haley and I wrote this episode. Caitlin Esch is our senior producer. She edited this episode with help from Catherine Winter and Peter Thompson. 
Scoring and sound design is by Chris Julin. Mixing by Brian Allison. Field engineering by Liana Squilacci and Drew Jostad. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't and tell a friend.